Hello, hello, and good Monday to you. Time for episode 134 of the Sports Wagon Podcast. Welcome to the show. It's your man, Uncle Dub. Hit me up on Instagram, Twitter. It's Uncle Dub, I-T-S-U-N-C-L-E underscore D-U-B. Hope the start of your week is going off very well. Um, spring is coming. <laughs> uh, at least it appears that way. The, the weather is in that weird, funky, fluctuating all over the place. I think it's supposed to be almost 50 today. But nevertheless, we're going to keep the train rolling as we get into uh, the sports from the weekend and from the week. We start today with Major League Baseball. We have some breaking news. And no, it's not the breaking news you think it is. Um, as far as I understand, uh, Major League Baseball and the Union are still a Grand Canyon's distance away from each other on ending the lockout. So as we talked about in the last episode, it appears that the lockout will continue. The regular season will be affected at this point. The breaking news, however, is Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter, as of today, he is stepping down as the CEO and shareholder of the Miami Marlins. So here's a statement per ESPN. Quote, today, I am announcing that the Miami Marlins and I are officially ending our relationship and I will no longer serve as CEO nor as shareholder in the club. We had a vision five years ago to turn the Marlins franchise around. And as CEO, I have been proud to put my name and reputation on the line to make our plan a reality. Through hard work, trust, and accountability, we transformed every aspect of the franchise, reshaping the workforce, and developing a long-term strategic plan for success. That said, the vision for the future of the franchise is different than the one I signed up to lead. Now is the time for me to step aside as a new season begins, closed quote. So uh, Jeter was a part of a group that purchased the team in August of 2017. So they bought the team for $1.2 billion. He then also had a, in addition to that, he had a 4% stake in the, in the uh, franchise and became CEO. So I'm sure more will be uh, coming out on that um, in the coming days as, you know, we kind of start to learn more about, you know, the, the, the why and the, and the speculation. So I'm sure the speculation started but we should learn more uh, over time over the next few days. All right, let's jump into where we normally jump into to start the week with college basketball. So I'm hoping, <laughs> again, as always, by the time I record this, it's usually close to the time that the men's poll drops. And then the ladies poll usually drops like an hour or two later. So at this point, by the time I finish this episode, I'm sure the ladies poll probably would not have dropped. But we'll get to it once it breaks over the weekend, on the men's side, seven top 10 teams lost on Saturday. We'll just run through the scores. Number 23, St. Mary's at home beats number one, Gonzaga, 67-57. Colorado beats number two, Arizona, 79-63. Number 17, Tennessee beats number three, Auburn, 67-62. Michigan State beats number four, Purdue, 68-65. Number 10, Baylor beats number five, Kansas, 80-70. Number 18, Arkansas beats number six, Kentucky, 75-73. And TCU over number nine, Texas Tech, 69-66. On the ladies' side, ugh, yesterday was interesting. The ACC was crazy. So you had games bookmarking the day. So you had two marquee games. You had Louisville-Notre Dame starting the day. You had NC State-Virginia Tech ending the day. So let's just say this. The end of the day was way better <laughs> than the start of the day. Louisville over Notre Dame, 86 to 64. Louisville led at the end of the first quarter, 31 to 3. It sounded more like a football score. Haley Van Lith lost her mind 
and Louisville opened up a huge bottle of their finest disrespect on Notre Dame's home court. It was 54 to 15 at the half. Louisville shot 59% from the field for the game. Haley Van Lith and Kiana Smith both had 20 points each and Olivia Miles had 13 points for Notre Dame. So really, they're really the, the, the story of this game was Louisville shooting. I mean, Notre Dame couldn't throw it in the ocean. They didn't have any answers for, I mean, once it was halftime, the game was pretty much over. I mean, I turned the game off at the end of the first quarter. I said, this one is done. There is no way with the way Notre Dame was shooting. I felt like Notre Dame, you know, um, you know, Maya Dotson, I mean, they were giving her, they were throwing the ball into her down low, either, you know, the, the pass was too high, too low. Um, you know, Louisville was just swarming to the ball. Um, Olivia Miles was trying to make things happen. She was forcing the game, but Louisville's def- Louisville's defense, I think, made the difference. And once they got a steal, they were out in transition. So, I mean, Louisville truly in this game looked like a Final Four team. Um, Missouri over number 15, Florida, 78-73. Haley Frank, 26 points, 10 rebounds for uh, Missouri. And Jordan Merritt, 23 points off the bench for Florida. Number 8, LSU over number 18, Tennessee, 57-54. Uh, Jalen Cherry had 14 points, 10 rebounds for the Tigers, and Tamari Key had 12 points for t- for Tennessee. Now, Tennessee, they were in that top 16. I think they were around a three or four seed. At this point, you can probably expect that they're going to be out of the top 16 uh, seed range. I don't know if they're doing another seed reveal. Um, probably not, because I think they may, but I'm not 100% sure. But you can expect if there is one more seed reveal, you can expect Tennessee will probably be out of it. That's my guess. Um, a lot of people are talking Iowa should be in it. I don't know. I mean, Iowa, you know, as good as Caitlin Clark is, they've got weapons, but it seems like the focal point is Caitlin Clark. And it's not so much. I mean, yeah, it's about stopping her. But I mean, she's one of those when she's on, she's on. And speaking of Caitlin Clark. Number 21, Iowa over number six, Michigan, 104 to 80. Caitlin Clark, 38 points, 11 assists. She went eight of 11 from three-point land. That's 72%. Again, she's hitting them from the logo like no big deal. I mean, this woman wakes up and starts hitting three-point shots. That's her range. She's hitting three-pointers from her dorm room. This is insane. Um, Naz Hillman, 18 points, 15 rebounds for Michigan. The nightcap in the ACC NC State, number three ranked over number 23 ranked Virginia Tech. This went down to the last basket. Uh, Tech drew up a play. They went for the three-pointer and the win. It just didn't go in. Uh, Elizabeth Kitley attempted to grab a rebound, but it was just too little too late. Uh, Elizabeth Kitley had 18 points for Virginia Tech for, for NC State. Alyssa Kinane, 22 points. Um, also from the ACC, another games kind of in the middle of that those two games that was just out of control uh number number 18 north carolina over duke 74 to 46 wow uh duke again i keep asking what happened um you know covid and injury really took their toll kind of i guess about halfway through the season um you yeah i this is gonna be interesting they've really got to show out during the ACC tournament, they've got to make something happen. I'll go through uh, the ACC tournament uh, uh, pairings in just a moment. Um, let's look at some news from news and notes from college basketball. Actually, before we do that, let me go. One of the things, CIAA tournament was in Baltimore this past weekend. 
on the ladies' side, Lincoln University wins their first CIAA title ever over Elizabeth City State, 67-52. to Brianna Brown, who is the Conference Player of the Year, 28 points. And Siran Pitts, 15 points for uh, Elizabeth City. The team dedicated their win to Deja Young, who's a former team member who passed away this past month in Detroit. On the men's side, Fayetteville State over Virginia Union, 65-62. This is their first CIAA title since 1973. Uh, Jalen Seegers, 15 points for Fayetteville State. And Robert Osborne, 26 points, 16 rebounds for the Panthers of Virginia Union. Um, Back to the news and notes in college basketball. South Carolina State, as we stay kind of on the HBCU uh, train here. South Carolina State head coach Audra Smith was fired Last Thursday, one day after she filed a federal lawsuit against the university alleging Title IX violations and discrimination at the school. So here's kind of the the, the, the points of her lawsuit. First, she was paid $30,000 less than the men's basketball coach. The team was provided fewer resources and more were given to men's sports, men's basketball, etc. This is the weird one. Visiting teams were not allowed to use the men's locker room to change and, you know, you know, prepare, while visitors for men's games used the women's locker room to, you know, do what they do pre-game and post-game. So that's very, very strange. So it sounds to me like there is a lack of facilities, resources, that sort of thing. Now, this is another weird one. During the season, um, she was suspended. I think I may have misread this and miswritten this in my uh, my notes. It said three months. I think it was a three week suspension. But anyway, she got a suspension during the season, um, and essentially it was related to a, a player. A player's family was sitting close to courtside and she was asked by a school representative to have that player's family move up into like their normal seats. And I think it was for like uh, either a senior day ceremony or something to that regard. And I think she was like three games and she says no. And she was suspended. She really believes that this is related to the federal lawsuit that she filed because she also had put in uh, what Freedom of Information Act requests to get certain records pulled for her lawsuit she was the head coach for four years she had one year remaining on her contract record was not that good 24 70 24 and 73 overall 4 and 21 this season now with that said let's break it to you this way you know where we're going with this if say milled season and say maybe the school had no idea maybe they suspected but we're like nah we you know we, we don't have any proof that the coach is filing this lawsuit and they say, look, we're going to let you go with cause records. Not good. OK, sure. But to fire somebody after they file a lawsuit, did the A.D. even bother to talk to university counsel? Oh, yeah, she's filing a lawsuit. We got to get rid of her. Sounds like another lawsuit to me. Now you're getting fired in a re- for retaliation for filing this lawsuit. Ridiculous. Just absolutely. Re- I don't understand why schools do this. Just, I mean, I'm not, I don't even want to go into the HBCU aspect. I don't even want to go there. 
we see this happening all the time, but this is just terrible. This makes no sense. Everybody who's involved with this needs to be fired because it's bad enough. You're going to get this federal lawsuit and there's going to be remedies due to the federal lawsuit. You know, things have to be changed and, you know, there'll probably be monetary uh, remedies going out and the like. But to then say, well, in response to you doing this, we're going to fire you. That's more money out the door. Are you kidding me? And their state school. So where's this money going to come from? And, you know, you know, you know, the times we live in that although HBCUs are getting more funding, I'm sure that there's going to be somebody in the state higher ups who are going to feel some kind of way who probably already feel some kind of way about giving all this money to an HBCU, but then going to really feel some kind of way about this action, which is going to cost the school more money because her lawyers have already said, look, this is going to cause more legal action. So whoever, whoever the judge is, judge isn't on this needs to really let the university council know y'all messed up and you messed up bad. You don't do that. I mean, Everybody knows that. I mean, okay, so she's telling you, hey, this is not fair. So what do you do? You fix it. You try to make it fair. I mean, we're in this age where, you know, if you remember was it last season with uh, uh, Sedona Prince at the NCAA tournament and showing, oh, here's our food and here's our, quote, weight room. And, hey, I got friends over at the men's tournament and they've got you got this big buffet spread. They've got this great weight room and all these accoutrements. And, you know, again, that shows you the equality. That's like the the micro version of what we're seeing throughout sports. And it's essentially a micro version of what's happening here. Only thing this is happening on a bigger scale. This is systemic within the school. So um, to Audra Smith, I, you know, hey. Uh, you, you look like I hope you got some really good lawyers. Um, they're on top of it, apparently. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> man, South Carolina State, y'all messed up and y'all messed up real bad. This should have been an L, but this was just too. Well, number one is an L is too easy. But secondly, I could not let this day pass without sharing that news. This is really bad. That that just that is such a bad move on many levels. From a, you know, we don't want to say from a PR standpoint, but just from a doing the right thing standpoint, this is a horrible look for the school. Um, the other note, Patrick Ewing. So uh, in, I guess, his press conference on Saturday, he expressed hope that he will return to Georgetown as head coach next season. So with their loss on Sunday to UConn, uh, number 21 UConn, 86 to 77. This is their 18th straight loss. They are currently 0-17 in the Big East. They are 6-22 overall. And this is the first time that Georgetown is going to finish last in the Big East. Um, Ewing, he's 68-81 and 81 in five years. This, he's only had one winning season at his alma mater. Um, now, if you remember, they won four straight games. They started day one of the tournament all the way through Saturday. Won four straight to win the Big East tournament and then get the automatic bid to the NCAA tournament where they lost to Colorado in the first round. So 
couple things with this. Number one, there's still a couple chances to potentially steal a win. Uh, they've got they go to Seton Hall on Wednesday and they finish the season on Saturday at Xavier. Um, so I read an article a couple weeks ago talking about you know just Patrick Ewing, you know, kind of how things have been going. And one thing that stuck out to me, a couple things stuck out to me. Number one, um, they talked about how, you know, within the Georgetown community, people weren't really saying a whole lot. You know, people were kind of going, look, you know, he's one of ours. He's, you know, he's the greatest player to walk through these doors and he's now leading the program. So we're not going to we're not going to make too much of this. And I understand that. I mean, I get that. Like I said, for me, again, when Patrick Ewing was named the head coach, I was like, this is a great move. I mean, first of all, from a OK, you know, the face. You know, he is Georgetown basketball. Okay. Then you say, okay, if you go out and get the players and coach them up, because again, it's not so much about recruiting, it's about coaching guys up because you can go out and get all the five stars you want. You don't coach them. Well, you got nothing. Players have to develop and grow. And I think after last season, a lot of guys transferred. He got, you know, he's lost some guys over the years, but I think last year, a lot of guys hit the transfer portal. So that's a little disconcerting. And in the interview I read, they talked to him and they said he appeared to be, you know, you know, in their conversation, they're sitting at the desk outside of his office and they're talking, you know, his phone rings. He picks up the phone. He's a hold on, picks up the phone. He looks at it, responds to a text, puts the phone down. And the, the writer said he looked just tired and, you know, coaching basketball, you know, in the collegiate level, it's not about the X's and the O's and making sure your players. I mean, it's it outside of the X's and O's outside of getting your players to class, making sure to graduate um, the recruiting. The recruiting is big. And that's one of the concerns that um, many folks had, you know, uh, with him becoming head coach coming from the NBA. They're thinking, OK. NBA is okay. You develop your players, you take stats, you do, you know, it's different. It's obviously a different game or the way you assist an assistant coach. Now being a head coach in college, you're on 24 seven. You are the face of the program. You've got to be recruiting all the time. You got to be, you know, recruiting guys. You got to be, you know, shaking hands with donors. You got to be, you got to sell your program every chance you get. There's hardly an off day. And people said that he looks tired. Like, okay, He's not crazy about recruiting, but he does it. Okay, so that that's kind of the, the the big thing. So the question is, you know, will he, you know, get another chance? I don't know what the recruiting looks like. Um, I believe he's got some some pretty good prospects coming in next year, but you know that's got to be you know a, a really tough decision down the road for uh, for the school to try to figure out you know how to you know, turn this around. And then I, as I always say here, if not blank, then who? So I say it here, if not Patrick Ewing, then who? Who's going to turn Georgetown around? I am rooting for him. I want him to do this. I really, really do. I mean, I think, you know, there's so many people out there and you know how in college, you know, with college sports, especially, you know, we look at basketball, typically with a lot of these great programs, you know, whether they've, you know, been great in the past or, you know, kind of had a, a pretty consistent legacy. Many of these schools tend to stay within the family, you know, North Carolina, Duke, as we're going to see, you know, John Shire take over for Coach K, 
um, now, you know, Patrick Ewing, you know, we stay in the family. He's, you know, a graduate, former player, you know. So a lot of these programs tend to kind of keep the keep it in the family, if you will. So now the question is, you know, how does he take what he knows and his love of the university? How does he take that and how does he translate it into number one, the recruiting? And then secondly, the development of the players, because that's the other piece. Again, recruiting is just a tool. I I used to be really big on recruiting. Now it's kind of like, okay, it gives me an idea. But then the question is, when someone comes in, you recruit a three star. Do they leave way better than they were? You recruit a five star, somebody who's pretty elite. When they leave, are they like next level? Again, that's what the coaching is for. And we see it across a lot of different sports. We see how coaches can transform, you know, recruits who may, you know, might get somebody who comes in. Okay, they weren't highly recruited, but they see potential, and they're able to coach that player to their potential, and in some cases beyond. So, um, I, it's it's a wait and see right now. We'll, we'll see how it goes. I mean, there's some other. You know, a lot of other jobs that are open out there. I mean, already, you know, uh, kind of looking at some of the reports, people are saying this might be a fairly quiet coaching carousel that's going to come up. We already know Louisville and Maryland are looking for a coach. Um, Most of these teams probably won't make a decision until after the NCAA tournament because they'll probably be looking at teams. In some cases, their coaches are still coaching. Um, and you know, and it's happening, you know, men's and women's side. So there's a lot of stuff happening and, you know, I'm kind of got my eye on a couple things on the women's side. So we'll see how that all plays out, uh, when it plays out. All right, let's look at the women's tournament. So we got, um, conference tournament. So we're going for four conferences here. So a lot of action is going to start, uh, Tuesday and obviously into Wednesday, Wednesday, most of your bigger conferences start so let's start with the acc the acc is in greensboro this year so starting on wednesday uh starting at 1 p.m so these three games will be on the raycom regional networks boo i hate when games on acc regional networks because guess what i mean if you're like me and you don't have regular cable you're not going to see it. So I wish in times like these, I still wish I had Masson since I live in the DC area. Cause I probably be able to see the games, but I have to just listen to uh, games on the radio. However, we start 1 PM on Wednesday, number 12, Syracuse uh, goes up against number 13, Clemson. Um, the winner of that game gets Virginia tech. I, I don't know. I'm liking Clemson in that game. I think it's going to be kind of tight, but I think Clemson will come out on top there. And, Syracuse is an interesting position because their head coach is currently interim. I don't know, you know, if he's he's being considered for the for the full time head coaching position. But, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. And there's a name that I think has kind of been mentioned to take over at Syracuse if they decide to, you know, look for um, a new hope, new coach. Um, so if you remember, uh, so she's currently at Buffalo, Felicia Leggett Jack. So she's a former uh, Syracuse player. As a matter of fact, her number was just retired, I believe, this year. So uh, that's a possible uh, replacement at Syracuse. And I think that would be a great hire. Um, 
if you know her background, she's at Buffalo now. She was at Indiana for six years. I really say six years. Six years. So here's how that worked. She had four winning seasons. She had a two game, a two season skid, and she got fired. So um, I think she kind of got, and I think many will agree, she got a raw deal at Indiana. She's at Buffalo doing really good work. So uh, Syracuse could be looking to talk to her for their head coaching position um, if they decide to, I believe his name is Vaughn, I forget his last name, if they decide to not take, they decide to not take the interim tag off his name. Um, in the middle game at 3.30, uh, Duke takes on Pitt. The winner gets Miami. Um, hmm. This is an interesting game. If Duke comes to play, they're going to beat Pitt. I think Pitt, Pitt's not a, you know, Pitt's not, I mean, Pitt's not great. They're not terrible. I mean, I see potential, but I think Duke can have the upper hand in this. They've got the shooting. They've got, you know, I like just the way they space the floor and move the ball. So I think Duke can probably win. I think Duke can probably possibly slide by Miami. But again, Duke's got to, they got to step it up and play. Like I said, they've got to make a showing this week to kind of help them out with the NCAA tournament. Um, in the nightcap, the 6:30 game, number 11 Wake versus number 14 Virginia. The winner gets Georgia Tech, so that's going to be a tall task. Um, in their first and their last meeting, I think this is the only meeting. Um, Wake got off to a really quick start, and Virginia just couldn't recover. So that's going to be the story. Can Virginia kind of channel some of that late season magic that allowed them to win two conference games? If they can do that, they might have a chance to upset Wake, and then they will get Georgia Tech, which, you know, I think when they played the Ramblin' Wreck, that wasn't pretty either. Um, again, another coaching situation that's really in jeopardy. So, I mean, Tina, Tina Thompson, I'm a big Tina Thompson fan. I was really excited when she got the job, but, oh, boy, this has just been not pretty for the last four years, and she's got one more season, so I don't know how this is going to go. But, uh, you know, we'll we'll keep our eye on it and see how that goes. Your top four seeds for the ACC tournament, NC State. So their first regular season title since sometime in the late 90s. Uh, number two, Louisville. Number three, Notre Dame. And with the Virginia Tech loss, North Carolina gets the four seed. The Big Ten tournament also starts on Wendy in Indianapolis. Uh, number 13, Rutgers gets Penn State. Number 12 seed, 2 p.m. Big 12 Network. Big Ten Network, rather. Um, the winner gets number five, Indiana. Uh, in the second game, number 14, Illini take on number 11, Wisconsin, 430. The winner gets six seed in Nebraska. Your top four seeds, Ohio State, Iowa, Michigan, and Maryland. Um, the SEC starts Wednesday in Nashville. Number 13, Vanderbilt versus number 12, Texas A&M. That game's 11 a.m. on the SEC Network. The winner gets Florida. Uh, the second game, which will start about a half hour after game one, Number 14, Auburn gets number 11, Alabama. So we get the Iron Bowl part three. <laughs> and then that winner gets Georgia. Your top four seeds in the SEC tournament, South Carolina, LSU, Tennessee, and Coach Yo's Ole Miss team. And they have just been a tremendous uh, turnaround, a really fun team to watch. Um, they've got those shirts that say we defend, and they do. They they play some, some really good defense. Uh, the, the old Miss ladies for uh, Coach Yo. 
Pac-12 starts Wednesday in Las Vegas. Your top four seeds are Stanford, Oregon, Washington State, and Arizona, as we talked about last show. The first round. So these games are going to be interesting. I think there's probably, well, actually, one game's going to be interesting. I think the other three will probably be pretty, you know, you know, walkover. I don't want to say walkovers, but I think we can kind of see who's going to win here. Uh, first game of the day. So these games, these all Eastern time. So 3 p.m. Eastern. Um, number 12, Washington versus number five, Colorado. The winner gets Arizona. I like Colorado. As I've said, Washington, you know, Tina Langley's first year, uh, they're making strides. I think she's making she's going to have some recruits in next year and some talent returning to improve Washington standing in the Pac-12. Number nine, Arizona takes on number eight, Oregon State. That game's at 530 Eastern. The winner gets Stanford. Um this game, 8-9, could go either way. I'm liking Arizona State. Number one, they're shooting their toughness. If Arizona State comes out hot and they defend, I think they can beat Oregon State. On the other hand, Oregon State can kick a little offense too. So I think this is going to be a, a pretty back-and-forth game. But whoever wins, which I think it might be Arizona State, they get Stanford, and you've got to really bring the house against Stanford who ran the table in the conference in the regular season. Um, the 9 p.m. game, uh, number 10 USC uh, versus number 7 UCLA. Again, this game could possibly go either way. I'll give the edge to UCLA. Um, that winner gets Oregon. I think if it's either team playing Oregon, I would give that match to Oregon. The last game, number 11 Cal versus number 6 Utah. The winner gets Washington State. That's 1130 Eastern. I'll take Utah. Again, Cal is still trying to figure it out and uh I, again I, I don't know what the heck's happening with cal but uh I, I guess they'll get there uh eventually all right so when we come back we'll talk a little bit of uh nba we'll do nascar we'll go over the, the basketball schedule for tonight and tuesday a few games the men's are the men are still playing women got a couple games here and of course the last of our black history profiles for this month but we'll kind of talk about that a little bit more after the break stay tuned
All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. So now it's time in the show. So typically after the interludes uh, in these episodes, I've been doing the Black History Profile. And um, so this is, as I said, the last one of the month. But um, as I've said in the show, we want to we always do and we continually look for ways to honor black achievement and we're going to continue to do that we've always done that since we began the sh- since i began the show we <laughs> it's me but um so uh as, as in the months to follow as as the season progresses you know we'll look to do more profiles on individuals on teams to celebrate and recall certain events uh that are significant in in, in sports especially uh, among african-americans uh, today's profile is on Emmett Littleton Ashford. He went by the nickname of Ash. He was the first black umpire in Major League Baseball. So he worked in the American League for only four years, from 1960, 1966 to 1970. But um, he, he had a significant impact on the MLB as far as seeing the influx of not just black umpires, but umpires who are Hispanic from all walks, from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds. So he was born in Los Angeles in 1914. He went to college, attempted to play semi-pro baseball, but he was actually drawn into umpiring kind of by accident. So he was at a game and the umpire didn't show up. And so folks asked him to umpire the game and he wasn't too thrilled about it. As, as And you know how with a lot of people's stories They'll say, well, I'm here, but when I first started doing this thing where there's coaching or whatever, uh, I, I wasn't crazy about it. Then something about it, they love it, they make the best of it, and they become very good at it. Later, after serving in the, in, in the Navy during World War II, he moonlighted as an umpire in different parts of Southern California, and then he became the first black umpire in the Southwest International League. So kind of one piece to the story that you probably have guessed or figured out that throughout his time in the major leagues, especially during this, during this time period, he obviously faced a lot of racial discrimination, um, you know, being called racial epithets and, and all the, and all this, all these things. So we talk about these folks who by profile that many of them endured or many of them did significant things, but if they didn't endure, the things like Mr. Ashford did, then there were other things that were systemically uh, problematic with maybe they did something that was totally crazy on the field or uh, as we talked about with Sura Bonnelly as an ice skater, you know, she did things that, you know, people didn't see. She was very good at it, but she was penalized for these things. And and, and then, of course, the rules did state well hey, you can't do this particular flip, but she did it in such a way that it did not necessarily violate the letter or the spirit of the law, but she was penalized for it. So again, you know, we see that there's still, although people want to say that sports is the great equalizer, there's still the disparity there. Let, let's, let's make no, no mistake about that. Um, so after the Southwest International League folded, he joined a number of different leagues out West. He finally was promoted to the Pacific Coast League in 1954. He spent 12 seasons there, and in 1963, he became the chief umpire. Now, around that time, so in the early 1960s, 
people really, you know, writers who saw him umpire, his style was very different. You know, he kind of gave a little flair to umpiring. So kind of, uh, you know, kind of the, you know, and the, you know, saying let numbers in a certain way and just really, you know, making umpiring different. And a lot of players didn't like that. And again, that's kind of part of that, you know, well, He's black. He's doing it a little differently. So they already have a problem with him being black. Then they have a problem with him doing the umpiring very non-traditionally. But there are many sports writers who are lobbying that he be sent or called up to the to the major leagues. So his Pacific League contract was acquired by the American League, and he made his debut at RFK Stadium on April 11th, 1966. So some notable things. He worked left field for the 1967 All-Star Game. And he worked all five games of the 1970 World Series, but he was not and did not work the home plate as the umpire. In 1969, so at the end of the year, he he reached the American League's retirement age of 55, but he umpired the 1970 season and then he officially retired. Post-retirement, he worked for Major League Baseball Commissioner, Commissioner Bowie Kuhn in public relations and he was the chief umpire for the Alaskan Summer League for three years. He was inducted into Baseball Reliquary Shrine of the Eternals in 2008. So this particular organization, they induct people based upon their contributions to baseball. So it's not so much about their stats or I mean, what stats does an umpire have. But because, from what I understand, of the means by which he made umpiring different, the flair he brought to umpiring and being a, a trailblazer, he was inducted into their Shrine of Eternals in 2008. At the age of 65, he died uh, in 1980. So let's think about this. Since Mr. Ashford's um, movement uh, uh, movement into Major League Baseball, being the first umpire, there's there have only been, count them, 10. 10 black umpires have come after him. And as recently as February of 2020, Kerwin Danby became Major League Baseball's first black umpire crew chief. So we're talking some 60, some almost 60, almost 50 some years after Mr. Ashford makes his debut as the first black umpire in Major League Baseball, we finally have a black crew chief. So again, we're still working to open the doors for many more, but the door was open thanks to Emmett Littleton Ashford, and we appreciate that. All right, uh, let's go to the NBA. So a couple notable scores from yesterday. The Sixers over the Knicks, 125 to 109. James Harden had a triple-double, 29 points, 10 rebounds, 16 dimes. Joel Embiid kicked in with 37. Four out of five starters for the Sixers had double figures. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm just looking at these numbers like, yes. Okay. Let's go Philly, right? Um, Mavericks over the Warriors, 107-101. Golden State led 88-74 after the third quarter. Luka Doncic led the fight back, 34 points, 11 rebounds, and Steph Curry, 27 points. I think Luka hit some key free throws at about eight seconds left in the game to secure the win for the Mavericks. Pelicans over the Lakers, 123-95. to CJ McCollum, 22 points for the Pelicans. So 
the Pelicans are kind of starting to feel a little bit. You know, the acquisition of CJ McCollum is really helping them to kind of push a little harder here. Uh, LeBron James had 32 for the Lakers. Um, we end today with NASCAR. Oh, well, we got to do major league, um, sorry, major league men's basketball, men's women's basketball. We'll get to that in a minute. NASCAR. So Kyle Larson wins the Wise Power 400 at Auto Club yesterday in Fontana, California. He led 28 of 200 laps. Austin Dillon second, Eric James third, Daniel Suarez fourth, and Joy Logano fifth. Interesting race. So um, if I recall correctly, this uh, track was recently repaved. So um, they did. So in the first stage, I think around lap 20 to 25, they did a caution to check tire wear. So pits were open. So they checked tire wear, changed tires. You know, so it was like a regular pit stop, but it was more so for safety. It was a safety pit stop as it was. And they were noticing some pretty good wear on these tires. So the drivers had to do a lot of things to kind of minimize as much wear as they can. Also, several cars were having issues with uh, the cooling. So with these new next gen cars, the cooling system operates a little different than the old cars. So several cars were having cooling issues and pit teams couldn't necessarily get to the heart of the problem. They had to either open the hood. I think one group, one team was putting sand at the front to kind of or or using high pressure air they were using a lot of different types of techniques in order to re- increase the airflow because i forget who it was uh might have been uh oh don't quote me i'm having not harvick uh anyway one of the might have been bush i believe he was having uh literally he's driving and steam is coming out of the front of his car so he had to pit and get that taken care of but very interesting race i mean and that speedway you go five wide on that sucker so i mean they did five wide to start as far as they did the once around during the warm-up laps to salute the fans but five wide action i mean that is pretty awesome i mean that's a pretty big track but 400 miles uh in california uh in february uh i mean such a nice way to kind of get the second race of the year kicked off uh, your current standings, Austin Sendrick, as we know, who won the Daytona lat, uh, two weeks ago. He's at 85 points. Joy Logano, second with 77. Martin Truex Jr., 73 points. Ryan Blaney at fourth with 70. Chase Briscoe, fifth with 69 points. Uh, so Eric Jones, uh, sixth with 68 points. Eric Amarola, 66 points. Tied at eighth is Kyle Larson and Bubba Wallace with 65. And then 10th, Brad Keselowski with 64. They go to Las Vegas, so they make the hop one state over. They go to Las Vegas this coming Sunday. We'll kind of preview that on Friday. Um, we'll end with basketball. Now we're going to end. How about that? My script is usually written in order, but because of MLB, I had to kind of reverse the order a little bit. However, basketball, men's side, tonight, Number 10 Baylor visits the Frank Irwin Center to take on the 20th ranked Texas Longhorns, 9 p.m. on ESPN. Tuesday, number 11 Providence. So Providence wins the Big East regular season championship for the first time. They go to Villanova to take on the Wildcats, 8th ranked in the country, 630 Fox Sports 1. Uh, Number 4 Purdue takes on number 13 Wisconsin, 9 p.m. ESPN. And uh, number two was con- uh, number number two Arizona goes to number sixteen USC eleven p.m. ESPN Pac twelve after dark. 
women's basketball tonight from the Big 12. Number five, Baylor visits Ames to take on number nine, Iowa State, 7 p.m. on ESPN2. And as we know, that's the end of the action for them. I forgot to talk about the Big 10 conference tournament, a Big 12 rather. Um, I don't think they're still set. So with a couple games still outstanding, we don't have a full picture of the Big 12 conference. So we'll get into that on Friday. Um, as we know, women's conference stuff starts Wednesday. So you got plenty of basketball to watch uh, starting Wednesday with the big conferences. I think a few will start tomorrow. So you've got a nice week of basketball on the ladies' side, and then the men will kick off next week, starting Tuesday, Wednesday, throughout the weekend. So for ESPN, next week, which sounds crazy, it should be this week, <laughs> because they always they always like the ladies until it's this time of the year. Then they go, oh, championship week is the week the men play. It's like, come on, ESPN, get it together. Just say it's championship week's. Let's make it two weeks worth of championship action. But anyway, but there you go. There is your roundup for the weekend. We'll be back at you on Friday. Hope you enjoyed the show. I'm glad to talk to you as always on this Monday. Hit me up Instagram, Twitter. It's Uncle Dub, I T S U N C L E underscore D U B. And until I see you again, do what you need to do social distance, mask up. And don't forget to drink your water and mind the business that pays you. Peace. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of the Sports Wagon Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and tell a friend about the show. You can also send me a voicemail or send me a message on Twitter or Instagram at It's Uncle Dub. That's I-T-S-U-N-C-L-E underscore D-U-B. Also, please consider supporting the podcast at buymeacoffee.com backslash sportswagonpod. I really appreciate your support. Thank you.